and do verses 1-13 through by God's grace today. This is His holy, inspired, infallible Word for us. And after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John, His brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. And His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became bright, white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. But when they lifted up their eyes, they saw uh, no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked Him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah first must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Please pray with me. Lord, this text is glorious. And, and it, it feels uh, too holy to touch, Lord, with human hands and to speak about with human lips to some degree. And we, we pray today that You would fill me and fill all of us with Your Holy Spirit that we might understand and appreciate and most of all worship Jesus Christ for everything He is and what He's done and that we would see what this text is supposed to teach. Please, God, guard my mouth and help me to worship You today as I, as I try, God, to to teach your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you might know that uh, I'm from Colorado, and me and my wife typically, at least once a year, travel out back to see my family. But one of the things that we do as a secondary motivation, maybe primary, but don't tell my family that, is we like to go hiking. Okay? And the... The thing about hiking is it's physically demanding, it's beautiful, but the thing that's really the payoff is when you get to the peak of the mountain, and you get to, to see the splendor uh, of everything that God created, okay? That's really the motivation for hiking, but when I come back to Ohio and I show you pictures that don't do it justice, and I try to explain to you why this hike was so wonderful and why me and my wife would go on a 13-mile hike just to see this faint glimpse, and I try to describe what I saw, it, it can never come out properly. It can never come out properly. And on this mountain, I mean, how much more infinitely is it undescribable to us? Uh, Calvin in his Institute says that when God speaks to us in His Holy Word, He lisps to us. And what He means is He talks to us like babies about His own nature and about His purposes because we're so weak in our understanding. And when I read through this text this week, I was overwhelmed by what God is showing. And the fear is, like that mountaintop experience in the physical world, I, I'm not going to be able to describe to you the things I have saw, and I'm not even sure if I understand 
the things that I see. But we're going to do our best today as we see the transfiguration. The symbols that are given to us of the Old Testament are overwhelming. And they're a multitude. And we are not going to be able to plumb the depths that is here. And I would be frightened to do so, to be honest. But we will try to scratch the surface and see something about what Matthew and the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us through this text today. As Jesus takes three apostles and shows them a vision of His own glory with a reminder that He must suffer. That He must suffer. Now, the purpose that we have here is to unveil the true identity of Jesus and the true identity of John the Baptist so that we would follow after Christ. Okay? So we must recognize the true identity of Jesus and in a lesser way, we must... We must recognize the identity of John the Baptist. And that's how these two paragraphs are tied together. And I hope that we'd see that today. So first, we must recognize on this mountain, as we see this vision with the apostles reading in His Word, we recognize the true identity and the glory of Jesus Christ. First, in His glorious person. The context that we have here is that Christ is beginning to teach His disciples about glory and His path to glory. And it has to go through the path of suffering. That Jesus, to be exalted to the place that He rightly deserves, must go to the lowest depth imaginable. In the Apostles' Creed, we read that Jesus Christ descended into hell. Now, while we don't, as Protestants take that literally, we say that on the cross, Jesus Christ descended in His sufferings and agony to the lowest possible place that any human could go. That He suffered hell for all of His people. But, here we are seeing the contrast of that. And the disciples are given a glimpse of glory so that they would be helped in their pilgrimage. But the glory of Jesus Christ, I want us to see first, is not naturally perceived. That is, men, sinful men especially, with human eyes, never looked at Jesus Christ in His person and saw glory there. Rather, the natural thing that we see throughout the Scriptures is that Jesus Christ had a a lack of earthly glory. And I hope that you understand what I mean there. That from the very moment of His conception and birth, He was born into a poor family. Born into a manger because there is no place for him in the inn. We see at the very beginning that his family was so poor that we read in Luke that when they took him to the temple to be circumcised, that they could only offer two turtle doves or a pigeon. And this was the least offering that could be given and was only reserved for the poorest of people. That Jesus Christ did not have earthly glory as we perceive it, even from the moment of his birth. But even past that, we see the early infant life of Jesus Christ. And it was characterized by what? Running. Running from persecutors. Suffering. Being sent away into Egypt. Away from God's covenant people. Because a king wants to kill him. More than that, we see at the end of Matthew chapter 2 that he would be called a Nazarene. And this is probably derogatory. Nazareth was a place that was despised and hated by everybody. And he's going to have this label put on him. He's a Nazarene. We don't need to pay attention to him. 
Oh, but furthermore, and past that, we know that in his adult life, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. The men looked at Jesus Christ as often in our sinfulness, look at a beggar on the streets, and we want to turn our eyes away from him. Even so, he didn't even have a place to lay his head. And so, the point I want to make is when we come to the transfiguration, everything leading up to this point did not point to Jesus in our earthly mind and earthly eyes having glory. But here, we see the the hidden truth of the person of Jesus Christ. His glory is revealed. He's transfigured before the apostles. Luke paints the picture that Jesus was up here on this high mountain praying, and as He was praying, He was transfigured before their face. This unesteemed man, hated by the world, homeless, rejected, the Holy Spirit shows us first in verses 1 and 2, the glory of Jesus in His person. Now, the whole text is talking about His person, but the text focuses here on the body and the appearance of Jesus Christ Himself. First, His face shining. They see Jesus transfigured and His face shines upon them like the sun. And it's interesting that if we look throughout the New Testament Revelation, we see a similar description of Jesus. In uh, chapter 1 and verse 16, it says, In His hand, Jesus' hand, He held seven stars, and from His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and His face was was like the sun shining in full strength. But I believe as these apostles gathered on this mountain and saw Christ transfigured before them, there are many Old Testament passages that would come to mind and all of them would have pointed to the the deity of Jesus Christ. Our minds might go to the ironic blessing in Numbers chapter 6. That they would pray that God's face would shine upon them. Many times through the Psalms, the same thing is said, Lord, make Your face shine upon us. This God, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 even, is described as a God who dwells in inaccessible light. But maybe primarily what comes to our mind is Moses' face coming down from that mountain. As he was a man in the presence of God for an amount of time, his face radiated that glory of God and reflected it for a time when he would come down the mountain. And I think that what we should see here is that the old covenant mediator, Moses, his face reflected the glory of God for a time when he was in his presence. So beautiful and wonderful is being in the presence of God. But Jesus Christ did not reflect that, but it was a part of his very essence and nature. That this is the God who is light. This is the God that we pray to in the Old Testament that you would shine your face upon us and give us peace. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ Himself symbolized in His shining face. The Old Covenant mediator, to repeat myself, had a derivative glory shining from His face, but Jesus Christ was an essential one. This is a symbol that Jesus Christ is both God and man joined together in one glorious person. But secondly, we see His garments, don't we? It's so wonderful is the transfiguration of Jesus Christ that even the things that cling to His skin are transformed in this moment. Now again, as we think about this and what this might mean, we go back to the Old Testament. 
And we think about times that perhaps we saw garments being white as light. And again, the primary symbol here is of God Himself. Psalm 104, you can turn there with me if you'd like. I'm going to read quickly. Psalm 104 is one of these texts that talk about garments shining as light. And verses 1 and 2 say this, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering Yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. And then we even think of Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9 that says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took His seat. His clothing was white as snow. His clothing was white as snow. So, as these apostles see Jesus Christ transfigured before Him, I'd propose to you today the symbolism of Jesus' body, His face and His clothing being changed before them is nothing else but an Old Testament symbol being repeated. That Jesus Christ in His nature was God. He appeared to men to be unesteemed, to be weak, to be hated and despised, but really in His nature, He was God in the flesh. But His glory is also revealed in verses 3-8 through in wonderful imagery that He is the total fulfillment of God's eternal purposes of salvation. So look with me in verses 3-8. through And I want us to realize and recognize here the overwhelming symbolism that we have. And this week when I was trying to prepare, the most difficult thing for me, and Brother Caleb, I text him quite a bit, is how to take all of these symbols and to put them into something that was cohesive and helpful for God's people because it's totally overwhelming. And get a sense of that with me. We have His symbolism here. His face, His clothes. We have Moses and Elijah, these two Old Testament figures. We have three tents being talked about being built for them. We have a bright cloud coming and overshadowing the disciples. And then we have Jesus left alone. Not to mention the voice coming from heaven. Being on a high mountaintop. All of these things scream Old Testament imagery. And the question that we have in our mind is, what do we do with all of this symbolism? Is it pointing to a particular passage in the Old Testament? And what I've concluded is it's not. I believe that the purpose of all of this imagery being gathered together on top of this mountain is meant to overwhelm us. And to lead us to one conclusion. That Jesus Christ and the Old Testament was written with Jesus Christ as its goal and its fulfillment. Let me, let me say that again. All of this imagery overwhelms the senses. And as we think about the Old Testament and see Jesus standing there alone, the point of all of this imagery is that all of the Old Testament was designed to always point to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of everything. Of everything. And we cannot, in this sermon, go through everything that Jesus fulfilled, but perhaps a couple of things. First, with Moses and Elijah, that Jesus Christ fulfilled all the teaching of the Old Covenant. Now, they look and they see Moses and Elijah there. And can you imagine these men that have been raised on the Old Testament? Moses and Elijah, these two great heroic figures that they read about as children, standing there. And what that could have meant. And there's many possible meanings. 
If we think about it, Moses and Elijah both went upon Mount Sinai and had a revelation of God, didn't they? Moses seeing the latter part of God's glory passing by, and Elijah seeing the great firestorm, the earthquake, and the wind. Moses and Elijah were also one a mediator, one a prophet. But I believe that the ancient interpretation of this text is probably right, and it's the consistent interpretation we see throughout church history that Moses and Elijah represented the whole Old Covenant writing. Now, the Law and the Prophets is what's being symbolized here, and it's a very common way that the Bible used to speak of the whole New Test- Old Testament. Now, according to this interpretation, that Moses and Elijah represented the Law and the Prophets the written Word of God, that Peter's error here is that when he saw Jesus transfigured Moses and Elijah and said, I'll build three tents, really what he was doing is saying, okay, I see Moses, I see Elijah, I see the Law and the Prophets and Jesus, and these are three ways that God communicates Himself, and I'm going to build three tents. These are three equal ways that God has communicated Himself through the revelation that He has given in the Old Testament and through Jesus Christ. But when this cloud overshadows them, notice what happens here. Last week we saw that Jesus Christ rebuked Peter for his foolishness, and here the Father does. The cloud overshadows and said, this is my beloved Son, you should listen to Him. And when they open their eyes, Jesus alone is standing there. Now this communicates something to us. It should communicate that all of the prophets, all of the law, are not equally viable modes of revelation, but rather all of the prophet, all of the laws, everything written in the Old Testament was pointed to one climax and one conclusion that Jesus Christ fulfills it all. And this is supported in the New Testament. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24 as the key text here. Luke 24. Verses 25 through27. These men on the road to Emmaus, downcast because Christ has been crucified, and Jesus appears to them and they don't recognize him. And Jesus, he said to them, "O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Notice this. All the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them all the Scriptures, the things concerning Himself. Notice what Jesus does here when He's walking with His disciples. He doesn't say when He appears to them, okay, since I've come, there's a new application to the Old Testament text. He says that the Old Testament texts were always about me. When we see Jesus in the Old Testament, we're not reading Christ into the text. Rather, the Old Testament explains Jesus Christ in an Old Testament shadowy kind of way. And we ought to read it that way. The wonderful symbolism here is to communicate the fact that Moses and Elijah, they pointed to Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the culmination and the fulfillment of all of these things. But also... I want us to see the symbolism of Moses and Elijah in their lives that they led. The lives that they led. That both of these men, I'm going to use a word that maybe you've heard, maybe not, led cruciform lives. 
That is, Moses and Elijah were men that took up the cross, so to speak, and followed after Christ even in the Old Testament. We read of this in Hebrews chapter 11, don't we? Where it talks about Moses forsaking the riches of Egypt, knowing that the people of God and the people of Christ were of more value. Elijah, he forsook everything. He was persecuted and nearly killed by Jezebel because he led a life of taking up the cross and following after Him. But they are a faint shadow of Jesus Christ. So not only the teaching of the Old Testament and all of its laws and sacrifices point to Christ, but the pattern of life of God's people points to Jesus. Jesus Christ forsook not the riches of Egypt, but the very glory that was due to Him in heaven. What a wonderful thing it is for Moses and a great testimony that he forsook everything that royalty entailed in order to lead the people out of Egypt. But Christ forsook all the worship of the angels, the worship of creation to come down to this earth to live and die for us. He would do more than Elijah who sacrificed the 400 prophets on the Mount of Carmel where Jesus Christ would go upon the mount and He would sacrifice Himself for all of God's people. These men, their lives, they typified Jesus Christ. And when we read the Old Testament, listen to this. We should read it in such a way where it all points to Jesus. We look at Moses and his suffering and we say, oh, but how much greater was the suffering of our new covenant mediator? We see the prophecy and the power of Elijah. How much better Jesus Christ. All of the symbolism of this passage points to the glory of Christ as God in the flesh and the total fulfillment of all of God's saving purposes. And again, we've barely scratched the surface. We haven't even talked about the clouds or the tents. All of this leads to one logical application. As this cloud overshadows them, God says, this is my Son. Listen. Listen to Him. If this is true of Jesus Christ, that He is Yahweh in the flesh, the Creator of the entire world, the Governor of the world that holds it all together, can you imagine being on this mountain and seeing this and interpreting it, that this is God in front of me? He's the fulfillment of everything that God ever wrote. What would be the natural response? I'd say it'd be the natural response of the disciples. They fell on their faces and were terrified. Terrified. The motivation here to listen to your son, the initial motivation is terror in the presence of God. And perhaps we would say with Peter in Luke chapter 5, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. But notice Christ in His response. He comes up and He touches them. He says, rise up. Do not fear. That Christ in His glorified state, visually seen here, He's the same as the man He was on the earth. He's full of grace and compassion to sinners. We listen to Him because He is gracious to us. Even though He is glorified beyond everything that we can imagine, He is full of grace and mercy and tells us to follow Him and not to be afraid. We must listen to Him. And certainly we must listen to Him in all things. We know that. Everything that He teaches, everything in the Old and New Testament, we are to follow after Him. But in this text, I think there's a particular application that God the Father wants the disciples to see. Jesus has told you He's going to go and suffer on the cross and die. And He's told you to take up your cross and follow after Him. You must listen to Him in this. 
Peter's tempted to say that can't be. He has this theology of glory that we talked about last week, that the Christ must go on from victory to victory and have an earthly kind of victory. But it's not so. It's not so. Believing in His crucifixion and following Him is what we are pointed to in particular in this text. And we notice that on both sides. Not just what we read last week, but notice in Matthew 17 at the end of our text, at the end of verse 12, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. This is the key that we're looking to. And the cross being central to this, I hope this isn't out of uh, order here, but turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Turn with me to Luke 9, especially if we're sitting here and we're maybe less than convinced that when the Father says, listen to my Son, He has the cross at the center of it. I think it's absolutely amazing that Luke, out of all the evangelists, he records the conversation, or at least the substance of the conversation between the Son, the M- Moses, and Elijah. Notice in verse 30 and 31 what is said here. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, notice, and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The substance of the conversation that was going on between Elijah, Moses, and Christ is that he was going to die on the cross. And this word departure in the Greek is exodus. They came to talk about his exodus. Moses accomplished an exodus of God's people, but Jesus is the fulfillment of that, delivering us from the spiritual bondage of Satan and hell. His mission, he appears glorious in this text, but his mission to suffer and die on the cross is not going to be glorious in the eyes of the world. It's not going to be glorious in the eyes of the world. And the disciples here must recognize the true identity of their Savior is a hidden glory. A hidden glory to the physical sight of the people on this world. And similarly, okay, they're taught on the way down the mountain that they must recognize the identity of John the Baptist. And this is much shorter. But just as they were called and shown the identity of Jesus Christ as a true glorified Son of Man, they are called to recognize the identity of John the Baptist as well. Notice in verses 9 through 10 the question that Jesus uh, answers, or the question that Jesus hears from, from the disciples. They're coming down the mountain, and Jesus says, Tell no one about this. And the inference there is if people know about my true glorious nature, I'm going to be hindered from going to Jerusalem and dying on the cross as my mission is to do. But then the question comes. The disciples ask, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? So it's an interesting question. Everything that we've talked about, the thing in the disciples' mind is if you're the true pinnacle of all the Old Testament, you're the true eschatological figure that's going to judge the world and the nations, the scribes have told us that Elijah has to come first, and we haven't seen him. Well, it's interesting because Jesus doesn't say that they're wrong about that. And what they're referring to in the Old Testament, if you're unfamiliar, is Malachi chapter 4. This is the, the last two verses of the Old Testament. And God prophesies in verse 5, Behold, 
I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of their children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And the scribes taught, rightly interpreting Malachi, that Elijah must come. But here's the problem. The scribes, as well as these disciples, interpreted Elijah coming again in an earthly glorious way. That Elijah, when he came, he'd be apparent and obvious to everybody. In fact, some of the Jewish myths concerning this is that he would come and he would actually restore temple worship, bringing back the the manna and the stones of the covenant and everything that was missing. Elijah would restore all of that in a glorious, earthly kind of way. But when Elijah came, he didn't come in a way that was recognizable to sinners on this earth. He didn't come in a way that way. Christ's answer is that He has come, but they didn't recognize Him. And I hope you notice the parallel here. Jesus Christ is not recognized by the world, and neither was His great servant, John the Baptist. Just as they did not recognize Christ for who He truly is in His glorious person, so they did not recognize the hidden glory that was in John the Baptist. Now, not glory in the same way that Christ had glory, but the glory of the Gospel that existed in Him and His mission that He was sent to do. They did not recognize John the Baptist. He was another man that was exemplified by His cruciform life. He lived his whole life for the people of God, living in the wilderness, living a life of poverty to preach to them the gospel of their salvation. The glory of his ministry was real. But instead of seeing it and saying, this is Elijah, they hated him for it. They hated him for it. So much so that they put John the Baptist to death. And I actually just read in my devotions in Mark 6 this morning about John the Baptist's death and how inglorious in the eyes of the world it was. This glorious man prophesied to come and prepare the way of the Messiah. He's killed at a party. His head taken off and put on a platter. The most inglorious, humiliating thing that could take place in our human minds except for the cross took place to John the Baptist. And the same fate waits for the Son of God. They didn't recognize Him. They don't recognize me. I'm going to die in the same kind of way, humiliated, as John was. Both John and Jesus were unrecognized by an evil and God-hating world. So, what are we to do with this? Brothers and sisters, I, I think that the obvious application for us here is that the world isn't going to recognize us either. It won't. Our union with Christ, as we talked about last week, it means that our old man died on the cross with Him and that we will raise with Him forever and that our new life is through His resurrection. But that entails suffering. And not only suffering, but that the world is going to look at us like they looked at the Savior. Notice 1 John 3.1. I'm just going to read it. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is because it did not know Him. We are so related and united to our Savior through faith that because they didn't recognize Him, we can be sure that they are not going to recognize us. Now, we can so easily buy into the lie in this life that we talked about last week 
The Christian life is one victory to another victory. That glory has been given us by the Father and we will be readily seen as glorious to the world. Now, don't we see this? When we go to evangelize to people, sometimes the hidden expectation in our mind is that we should have a halo glowing around us like we see in the Roman church. And we maybe should be floating about six inches off the ground. And every word that comes out of our mouth is grace and truth. And the world must notice us. Brothers and sisters, that's just not what the Bible teaches They didn't see our Savior that way who had all of this glory. They're not going to see us that way. They won't. They can't. They're not going to see us with our clothes white and shining, living our life effortlessly. That is not what we are to expect. Rather, God has ordained that the glory of the Gospel is to be poured into weak, foolish vessels like you and me. That the glory that we have, like Christ, is hidden. It's hidden. That we, that, and the purpose for that is that God would receive the glory alone for what is done. And a passage we read often, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, explicates this wonderfully. 2 Corinthians 4, again, brothers and sisters, if they didn't recognize John the Baptist, they didn't recognize Christ, they will not recognize us. And this is ordained by God. Verse 7. Uh, We'll read verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, notice, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are, again, the language of in glory, not glory. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Brothers and sisters, if this is not your vision of what the Christian life is supposed to look like, then it's not the vision of the Bible. We've bought into the lie that we have to live victorious, effortless lives, and it's just not the case. We are prone to thinking earthly thoughts about Christianity, and this causes us to be filled with doubts and fears continually. To lack contentment in what God has ordained for us. Affliction, suffering, weakness, and persecution. We're not content because we don't have a right view of this. But this perspective of Christ, of John the Baptist should change us. should change us to be content with the hidden glory that God has put into our hearts. Belief in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Impossible for a sinner. Even if our lives appear to the world as non-glorious. The opposite of glory. And in this way, we can become like Paul who said in 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Next chapter tells us that Christ was crucified in weakness, but He was raised by the power of God. 
And so, brothers and sisters, we see this Mount of Transfiguration and we should worship Christ as the fulfillment of all of God's saving purposes and recognize the hidden glory that Christ carried about. We similarly, but differently, carry the glory that has been given to us in the Gospel. And if they didn't recognize us, they won't recognize Him. And we should follow Him. He went to die, and so must we because of His promises and who He is. Um, Please pray with me. Lord, we come before You.